Well, as you probably noticed, I'm dressed a little bit like a Baptist today. Um, I decided to, you know, pretend to be Alfredo. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But um, Alfredo, if you're listening to this, I'm in. I'm dressed nice, like a Baptist. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I went to a funeral today. And it was for, uh, I work at Harvest in the high school ministry, and, and our secretary there, her name is Cookie, and she is such a sweet woman, such a sweet woman. She's like a second mom to everyone who knows her. Um, she's just that person that will always be there for you and is the first person to, when you need it, sort of smack you in the back of the head, or at least me, because I need it a lot. And... Um, Cookie's husband, Tom, is an equally special guy. Um, Tom uh, is, is a, a great man of God who's just a worshiper. He's a worshiper. If there was ever anyone who just loved to worship, it was Tom. And uh, after surviving um, a long battle with cancer on uh, last Monday, Tom went home to be with the Lord. And so I went to his funeral today, and it was a really special funeral, because as all funerals, as you know, if you've ever been to a funeral, funerals are, they're, they're solemn, they're somber, uh, but this was a celebration. It really was, and I love the, the program. I wish I would have brought it, because the first line on the program said, many of you here today have heard that Tom Deming is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? He's just changed addresses. And... Uh, and I love that because that's something Tom would say, and it's, and it's something that's so true, family. You know, when a Christian goes to be with the Lord, that's exactly what it is. It's not a euphemism that we just say. Oh, they went home to be with the Lord. No, it's true. The Bible says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Your last breath on earth is your first breath in heaven, in the very presence of God. It's true. Tom Deming is not dead. He just changed addresses. He just changed addresses. But the thing that was so special about Tom is, is like I said, he was just a worshiper. There was a couple of times um, when he was in uh, cancer, uh, the cancer ICU wing of Hogue Hospital in Newport that we as a staff all traveled down and we went to go be with Tom and just visit him and encourage him. And so we had like a high school ministry staff field trip and we go down and uh, Aaron, one of the guys I work with, uh, is a worship leader and he'd bring his guitar down and we would just have like an hour and a half worship session. And it was always so awesome because Tom had, um, he had a a J-tube, which means, you know, he had had a tracheotomy, so he couldn't speak. But he... I mean, still, even in the midst of not being able to sing, was just the, the m- most beautiful worshiper you've ever seen. Sitting in that frail in that hospital bed, but just worshiping Jesus with his arms stretched out to heaven. It was truly a, a wonderful, beautiful thing. I'll never forget that image of seeing Tom, who was once, you know, a, a fairly big guy, um, but reduced to being about... 90 pounds, um, you know, with this fight with cancer and, and just frail and weak, but hands raised to heaven worshiping God. The reason why I bring this up is because that's what we're going to be looking at today 
in our chapter is worship. We're going to be taking a look at worship. If you haven't been reading along with us or you missed a couple chapters this week, usually every Tuesday I give a a quick recap of what's gone on, what happened over the last week. It's sort of like when you watch an episode of Heroes and they recap for like the first three minutes what happened in the last few episodes. That's sort of what the first few minutes of The Upper Room always is, is it's the recap, what you missed last week on The Upper Room or The Bible. Uh, So what's gone on? Well, last week, you remember, we studied a couple of plagues uh, that were happening to Egypt. A couple of plagues, three of them in particular. The, the first one that we studied was frogs. There we go. I heard like a murmur, but I wasn't sure if you, y'all got it right. But yes, frogs. The second was gnats, lice, mosquitoes, something along those lines. We're not exactly sure what tiny bug it was, but it was definitely bugging Pharaoh. And the third plague that we looked at was flies, flies. We looked at these three plagues, and we saw how each and every one of them uh, in some way represented a god that the Egyptians worshipped. And we ended up taking out of this that when you worship anything other than God, God gives you exactly what you worship. When you worship anything other than God, any other idol, whether it's success or money or fame or grades or whatever it is, when you worship anything other than God, that's exactly what God gives you. And it always turns out to be bitter in the end. It always leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It always overwhelms you. Because the only thing that we can worship and get an abundance of and never be sick of it is God. You'll never be sick of spending time with God. You'll never grow weary of God. You'll never have enough Jesus in your life. You'll always want more and more and more and more and more. Honey is great, but if you have too much honey, you get sick. Sugar is awesome, but if you have too much, you you have this sugar high and then you crash. You know, Coffee, same kind of thing. You just get super jittery and sick to your stomach. All these things in life, though, these are all silly examples, but money. If you chase money, God's going to give you exactly what you worship, and you're going to end up hating it. You're going to end up a very rich, old person with nothing else other than money, if that's what you worship. If you chase after success or popularity or fame, all of these things, you'll get them, and you'll realize how worthless and empty they are. After this, Continuing on through the the last week of what happened in the last few chapters, we looked at a few more plagues. We saw locusts. We saw uh, the livestock of Egypt being struck down by God. We um, We saw darkness. I'm trying to remember just off the top of my head, and I'm kind of failing at it, so bear with me. Um, What am I missing? Anyone, this is your chance to jump in because you're reading along. Boils, yes, Miss Boils. Uh, Boils, darkness was the ninth plague, and then I, I said hail. Yeah, I said hail. Awesome, though. Thank you. Keeping me on my toes. Darkness was the, the, the ninth plague, and then Moses comes to Pharaoh, and he warns him, if you don't, let up. If you don't let my, let God's people go and worship him, 
God's going to come down and kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, including your own son, Pharaoh, your firstborn son. Pharaoh's like, forget it. Not going to let the people go. This is the Tyler Revised Standard Version. Forget it. I'm not going to let the people go. And so God does exactly what he promised to do. But he makes a provision first. He makes a provision. He tells Israel, tells Moses, go tell Israel and all the Egyptians who will hear you. Because there were some Egyptians who really respected Moses and respected God and feared him. And, uh, and so God tells Moses to tell everyone, go slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of your house. And when this happens, when I send out this angel of death to go kill the firstborn of all the land, if there's blood on your doorposts, I will pass over your house. I'll pass over your house. God then tells Moses to, to put together a very special feast, which we know is the Passover feast. And so that night, there was a great cry in Egypt, like never had been heard in the land and never will be heard again. As the firstborn of every single family was killed. The the firstborn among every single family was killed who didn't have the blood on the doorposts of their house. This, of course, speaks to Jesus, the spotless lamb who put his blood on the doorposts of our life and has saved us from death, right? And so Pharaoh, in his bitterness, relents. Says, get out of here. Take your people and go. And so they do. Moses gets all the people and they go, plus quite a few Egyptians. Yeah, that's right. They take some Egyptians with them. These are the people that just, they fear God. They, they believe in God. They've seen these miracles. They've forsaken the, the world. They've forsaken Egypt. And they leave Egypt to follow Moses and the people of Israel. They get out the door, though, in a sense, and Pharaoh realizes what he's done. He's just let this awesome, expendable workforce go. Remember, Israel was Egypt's slaves, and he just let them go. And so he, he sort of realizes what he's done. He, he gets everybody, all of his armies, and he says, we got to chase after him. We're going to overtake him. And so they do. They get in their chariots, and they, they hunt down, in a sense, the, the Hebrew people. And they back him into a corner up against the Red Sea. Well, we know what happens next. All the people of Israel sort of freak out. Moses turns to God, and God tells Moses to hold out his, pardon me, his staff over the Red Sea. And the entire Red Sea splits into two walls, two walls of water. And all of Israel walks across the Red Sea on dry ground. Crazy miracle of God. The entire people of Israel walks through the Red Sea. Where there once was this massive body of water, it's now piled up in two walls on the sides. And they walk through on dry ground. On dry ground. Well, they get to the other side and Pharaoh and his chariots chase him down. They chase him down. They go into the Red Sea after Israel. Once Israel's completely on the other side of the Red Sea, safe and sound, God lets down the walls of water and drown Pharaoh and all of his chariots. And like we said last week, all of Pharaoh's horses and all of Pharaoh's men couldn't bring Israel back to Egypt again. Ha ha ha. 
But they all drown in the Red Sea. They all drown in the Red Sea. And so Israel turns around. The, e- Egypt is still pursuing them. They're, they're freaking out again. And all of a sudden, the walls of water collapse on all of Egypt. They're all drowned. And Israel is safe on the other side of the Red Sea. And this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have gilded them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the, horse, for when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We'll pause there. I know you're thinking, well, gosh, I hope we pause there, because otherwise, man, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Like I said, Today we're going to be taking a look at worship. What worship is and what it means for us to worship and why we should worship. You know, a lot of scholars uh, believe that Genesis 15 is out of place. That it wasn't really written by Moses and that it wasn't really intended to be here. They believe this because it's a break in the narrative. It's a break in the narrative. This is what I mean by that. We have storytelling time, storytelling time, storytelling time, a song. Storytelling time, storytelling time. It it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. And so scholars 
have made the point that Genesis 15 must not have actually been written by Moses. Exodus, I'm sorry. Y'all know I do that. Mix up names, books. Please, love me anyway. Love covers a multitude of sins. But please, always correct me because I don't want to continue making a mistake and lead anyone astray. But understand, there's just something wrong with my brain that I mix up names, okay? It's like name dyslexia. Anyway, um... They believe that Exodus 15 does not belong here. It doesn't belong. The reality is, though, that not only does sort of the grammar, like the antiquity of the grammar, place Genesis 15 as written in the same time period as the rest of the book of Exodus, but more importantly, more importantly, Exodus 15 had to be a song. It had to be a song. It's not that it is out of place. It is the only thing that could fit here. Here's why. Anytime God does something great, we must worship. Anytime God does something great, we must worship. Again, imagine the scene. Israel has just crossed through the Red Sea God has parted the entire Red Sea. Amazing miracle. As if that wasn't enough, they walk through as if, it's, as if they're walking on dry ground. Understand, even if we could take a lake, like if we went to Lake Matthews up here, and we somehow pulled back the water, the dirt that's underneath that would be muddy, murky, and impossible to run through or drive a cart through or have a horse walk through, it it would be nearly impossible because of how muddy and murky that ground would be. But not only did God part the Red Sea, but he made it easy for Israel to walk through the walls of water as if they're on dry ground. So they walk through, completely amazed of everything that's happening, looking to the left, and I imagine seeing fish swim by, and uh, sort of like a, a massive aquarium. And they get to the other side, but they're still in a little bit of a panic because Egypt is still chasing after them with all its fury, and they turn around, the water drops down, and their pursuers are instantly killed. What could they have possibly done other than worship? What could they have possibly done other than praise God? Genesis 15, understand, had to be a song. It had to be a song. Because any time God does something great, what, was, what must we do? Worship. Any time God does something great in our lives, we must worship him. It's almost as if it's written within us. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Imagine a time that God has just really pulled through for you. What what does it make you feel? Are you bummed? When God pulls through for you, are you just having a bad day because God just totally saved the day? No. You're stoked. You're joyful. You're thankful. And you just, you want to do something to bless God. You want to do something to tell everyone about how great God is. It's almost as if it's written within the very fabric of humanity to sing praises to God when he does something great. Genesis 15 is there a worship song. Because God has just done something so amazing. And family, again, the same is true for us. 
every single day, multiple times throughout the day, God is doing something amazing in your life. Do me a favor, everyone, take a breath. That breath is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. He ordained from before the foundations of the earth for you to take that breath. He orchestrated your life to bring you here this very day. Understand, family, everything that goes on around you is God doing something amazing. And so every day, every moment of every day should inspire worship within us. It should inspire praise in our, in our hearts and in our souls. Because God is always doing something crazy and amazing in our lives. But let's take a look at this worship song that we find in Exodus 15. And let's figure out what worship is, or rather what worship should be. Before we do that, I, I sort of forgot to make a point, and I want to go back. My bad. Because here's the thing. This is why I want to take a look at Exodus 15 and see why we need to understand what worship should be. Because family, so often, I've sat in services all around the world, church services, and seen and experienced worship that was just wrong. It was just wrong. It didn't make sense, or it was all about me, or it was overcommitting wild, crazy things to God that aren't true. You know? I, uh, I did something like a fun exercise with a friend of mine who's a worship leader. Um, I printed off, you know Mad Libs? It's like a fun game you play as a kid. You just, you're like, okay, give me an adjective. You play with someone, they give you an adjective. Okay, give me a noun, and you fill in all these blanks. And it comes up with a really funny, random statement that doesn't make sense. Well, I did worship ad-libs with a friend of mine, and, uh, and it turned out really funny. I, I remember one of the verses was, I would run 80,000 cubits for your omnipresence, Yahweh. And it's just like, that doesn't make any sense. And then another verse was, uh, I would choke 80,000 tigers for your glory, Jehovah. And it was just like, that was ridiculous. So, you know, that doesn't make any sense. We would never sing a song that says that I would choke 80,000 tigers for any random attribute. I would choke 80,000 tigers for your great love, God. That doesn't make sense. We wouldn't sing something like that. But so often, family, in our worship, we do. We don't think about the words that we're singing. Okay? We don't think about what we're saying, what we're committing to God, what we're saying to him in our worship songs. We just have this emotional feeling, and it's so awesome, and we're just ready to just say anything to Jesus. But family, I want to take a look at what worship really should be based on Exodus chapter 15. So the first thing we see in Exodus 15 that's extremely important to point out is that worship is directed to God. Worship is directed to God. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 1, then Moses said or met, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Worship is directed to God. 
I know that sounds kind of stupid to make a point out of that, that worship is directed to God. I'm sure you're thinking, well, duh, of course worship is directed to God. But family, listen, it's so important to not to not be, when you're in worship, when you're in a worship service, singing songs to the ceiling. Just reciting these words as if they're just another rock song you're hearing on the radio station. Some ridiculous Black Eyed Peas song that you just know all the lyrics to and so you're just singing it, you know. So often our worship is like that. We come here to the upper room and and we get up and we have this time of worship and we're just singing these familiar words to us without any meaning attached to them, without any direction to them. It's not really directed at God. We're just singing to the ceiling. It shouldn't be this way, family. Our worship needs to be directed to God. Not only in our hearts should our worship be directed to God, but in what we're singing. I won't go into uh, pulling out or or calling out any particular worship song uh, tonight. But I've noticed a trend sometimes in songs that often our worship songs are, have to do with us rather than Jesus. Okay, I lied. I am going to call out a song. I, I, I can't say something like that and not give an example. And so the, the first thing that comes to my mind that always makes me laugh, which, by the way, should never be. If you're a worship le- leader, you never want people to laugh at your worship set. But one song that always makes me laugh inside is, We are the children of God. We are the children of God. We are the children of God. We are the sons and the daughters. Almighty God is our Father. We, 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 we. Why is my worship about me? Understand, family, our worship isn't about us. It's not directed to us. It's not even directed to the church. Our worship should only be directed to God. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord. Moses and the children of Israel sang to the Lord. Not to themselves, not to nature, to the Lord. Everything that we're going to read, as, or as we already read, and as we're going to continue to read through this song of Moses, this worship song, everything is about God. Everything. Our worship needs to be directed to God. Our worship needs to be directed to God. The second thing we see in in verse 1 is that our worship needs to be for God's glory. Our worship needs to be for God's glory. We see there, Moses says, I will sing to the Lord for. So when we see for or therefore in the Bible, we need to stop and understand what's being said. This is like a logical process happening here. For means here's the reason why. So Moses says, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Why am I singing to the Lord? For he has triumphed gloriously. For he has triumphed gloriously. Our purpose for singing worship songs to God needs to be for his glory. Here's what I mean. Worship isn't about feeling good. 
It's not about feeling good. It's not about an emotional high. It's not about just closing your eyes and raising your hands and just feeling something emotionally in that moment. That's not the purpose of worship. If you experience that and it's of God, praise God. Literally, praise God. But that's not the purpose. So often I've talked with people that are discouraged after a Bible study or after a service because, you know, they're, they're just bummed out. And it's like, well, what, what's going on? Why are you bummed? Oh, I just, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't feeling it in worship. You know, I, I just, I wasn't feeling it. You know, I was, I was trying, I was closing my hands, uh, closing my eyes and raising my hands, but, you know, I just wasn't feeling it. It's not about you feeling it. It's about praising God for his glory. For his glory. You know, this past Friday, and oftentimes Josh Thompson makes it a point, you know, like telling your soul, soul, you will bless the Lord. Look, you're going to bless the Lord right now. You are going to praise God whether you like it or not. And it's funny, but that's what we need to be doing, family. Sometimes we have to, in a sense, force ourselves or, or push ourselves to worship God because it's not about us. It's not about an emotion. It's not about a feeling. It's about God's glory. And God's glory isn't dependent on how you're feeling. God's glory is not dependent on how your day is going. God's glory is not dependent on your heart in the matter. God's glory is dependent only on himself. And he is glorious. He is glorious. Like I said, Genesis, Exodus, I'm sorry, 15 had to be a worship song. Why? God just did something amazing. He just did something amazing. He just displayed his glory to the entire earth. And so Moses says, I will worship God because he has triumphed gloriously. Our worship not only needs to be directed to God, but our worship also needs to be for his glory, intended for his glory, not our feelings. Intended for his glory, not our feelings. Thirdly, we see in Exodus chapter 15, and this is so crucial, so really listen in here. Worship must be personal. Worship must be personal. Worship has everything to do with relationship. Worship has everything to do with relationship. Verse 2, read with me. Exodus 15, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Worship has everything to do with relationship. Our worship must be personal. Understand, if you don't have a relationship with God, it is impossible for you to worship him. It's impossible for you to worship him if you do not have a relationship with him. We know that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Is what the gospel of John tells us. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay. 
If you don't have a relationship with God, and this is what I mean. This is what I mean by a relationship with God. Like Moses said, Moses said, he has become my salvation. If Jesus has not become your salvation here, if you are living your life on your own, trying to do your thing, trying to live life even religiously on your own terms, in your own works, Jesus has not become your salvation. If your religion has to do with you, he has not become your salvation. Understand, salvation comes by grace through faith alone, not by works. Salvation comes by grace through faith alone, not by works, okay? But if you have surrendered everything you are to Christ and asked him to come into your life and not only be your savior and your God, but your, your friend, your master, if you've surrendered your life completely to him and he has become your salvation, then you can praise God. Then you have a lot to praise God for. People in this world, they can't worship God. They can't praise him. Why? Because they don't know him. They don't know him. And so they can't possibly worship or praise God. And so family, our worship must be personal. It must be relational. We need to have a relationship with God for us to be able to worship him in the first place. And more than that, family, the source of Moses' worship is what God has personally done in his life. The source of Moses' worship is, a, is what God has done personally in his life. God has saved you. Therefore, praise him because he saved you. God has given you this breath that we just talked about. Therefore, praise him for the breath that he's given you. Worship God for what he's doing in your life. Our worship must not only be directed to God for his glory, but our worship must be personal. It must be rooted in a relationship with him. Because if we don't have a a relationship with God, our worship is nothing more than words. It's nothing more than lyrics. Thirdly, or I'm sorry, fourthly, we see that Worship has everything to do with who God is. Has everything to do with who God is. Verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a man of war. Moses is pointing this out because of what God has just done. God has just triumphantly conquered the enemy triumphantly conquered the enemy. The Lord is a man of war. And so Moses is praising him. Moses then says, and this is what I want to to point out for a little bit. Moses says, the Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. Family, anytime we see Lord in all capitals in your Bible, it means that that is the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. We say Yahweh. Unfortunately, we don't fully know how to pronounce this name of God uh, because the vowels were always left out when the Hebrews 
transcribed scripture or wrote about God, they always left the vowels out, okay? Because they believed that God's name was too holy to say and even too holy to write. They were so afraid to use his name in vain that they wouldn't even write out his full name. And so they left out the vowels. And so we have sort of inserted vowels and we now say Yahweh. So if you've ever heard Yahweh, that's where it comes from. Those are the most likely vowels to sort of fill in the blanks of Y-H-V-H. Y-H-V-H. Yahweh. Okay? Um, this is the name, though, that God tells Moses in the burning bush to tell the people that this is who he is. Moses says to God in the burning bush, who am I supposed to say sent me? I don't even know your name. You're telling me to go rescue these people from Egypt. I don't even know who you are. What's your name? And God tells Moses, I am that I am. You say that I am sent you. That's Yahweh. It's I am. What this really means, it doesn't just mean I am that I am, but there's no real English grammatical way to put this. And so I'm going to put it ungrammatically. This is like the literal translation of Yahweh. I am that I was, that I am, and that I will be. I am that I was, that I am, and that I will be. This is God's name. It speaks of his eternality, that he's eternal. He, he existed before, he exists now, and he always will exist. God is eternal. It speaks of his unchange, like unchangingness. The, the word is immutability, his immutability. I am that I was, that I am, and that I will be. In other words, what I was, what I am, and what I will be are all the same. I am that. I never change. Anytime we see the Lord in those all capitals, it's referring to God's name. Why is this important? Because in this name is sort of wrapped up and encapsulated everything that God is. Worship should not only be directed to God for his glory, not only should worship be personal, but worship should have everything to do with who God is, not who we are. Worship should have everything to do with who God is, not who we are. Make sense? Okay, we'll continue reading. This is going to be a longer chunk that we're going to read now. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots... And his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. We'll pause right there. 
Not only is worship directed to God for his glory, not only is worship personal, not only is worship everything of who he is, having everything to do with who he is, but worship has to do with what he's done. With what he's done. Worship remembers what God has done. Worship remembers what God has done. There's nothing greater in our lives that God has done than save us from sin and death. God sent his son to earth to die on a cross, bearing all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, so that we could be made right with God, so that we could spend eternity with him. So that we could lay aside sin and choose not to disobey God, but choose to obey him. There is no greater thing that God has done than save us. And that's exactly what's happened here in Egypt. Israel has been saved from Egypt. They've been slaved from slave, saved from slavery. And so worship remembers what God has done. You remember, as we're studying Exodus, we're looking at two themes. The first one is that God saves a special people. God orchestrates everything to save a special people for his glory, right? God orchestrates everything to save a special people for his glory. That's Israel. But under the surface, we're studying the book of Exodus, understanding that it's a book about being separated from the world. Not only is this a true account of Egypt being saved from slavery to Egypt, but it's, in a sense, a picture of us and how we've been saved from slavery to sin. Say that five times fast. He's been saved from slavery to sin so that we could enter in to the promised land. What's the promised land? Well, it's eternity with God. It's eternity with God. It's a relationship with him. We've been saved from Egypt, pulled out of the world. And so family, since we've been pulled out of the world, it's time to turn our backs on the world and point our eyes to the promised land, right? Family, our worship, just like Israel's, being remembering what God has just done, our worship should remember what God has done. Our worship should remember what God has done. So not only should our worship be directed to God for his glory, but our worship should be personal. Not only should our worship be personal, but it should have everything to do with who God is and what he has done. Our worship should have everything to do with who God is and what he has done. Let's continue reading, though. Verse 11 I love this. Uh, This is probably my favorite little section. Well, maybe my second favorite section of this worship song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Let's read that one more time. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you? Listen, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Let's just read on to the first little part of verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Worship, family, not only is directed to God for his glory, not only is our worship personal, not only is our worship everything about who he is and what he's done, but listen, our worship should be doctrinal. Our worship should be doctrinal. Here's what I mean by this. Basically, doctrinal means biblical. Our worship should be biblical. You remember when I, I, came, I sort of gave the, the goofy illustration of our, you know, like the worship ad lib sort of thing where it's, I would choke 80,000 tigers for your, oh, it was scary. That's what it was. I would choke 80,000 tigers for your scary omniscience, God. That's what it was. That was one of the, the things. How ridiculous is that? I would choke 80,000 tigers for your scary omniscience. Not only is it ridiculous that you'd choke 80,000 tigers, but it's ridiculous that God's omniscience would be scary. It's ridiculous that God's omniscience would be scary. God's omniscience is comforting, right? It's comforting to know that God knows everything that's happening because that means he's working out everything that's happening. He's orchestrating everything. Why? Because he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. God's omniscience isn't scary. So often our worship, my point in bringing that up, is so often our worship family really isn't doctrinal. It really isn't biblical. The things that we're singing aren't biblical. They're not doctrinal. They're not true. Our worship should be doctrinal. Now, what does this mean? How, how does our worship become doctrinal? Well, it means that you have to become well acquainted with God's word. Well acquainted with God's word. The purpose of the Bible is God revealing himself to man. God revealing himself to man. So if you want to know who God is, read the Bible. If you want to know what God's like, read the Bible. If you want to get to know the creator of the universe, read the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed. Study God's word. Study God's word. Have good theology, family. Have good theology. Because in order for our worship to be doctrinal, in order for our worship to be praising the attributes of God, because that's what Moses is doing here. He's saying, who is like you, majestic in holiness. Guys, majestic in holiness. He's awesome in glorious deeds. God does wonders. God has steadfast love. 
God guides. All of these things are theological or doctrinal statements, okay? These are all biblical statements of God's attributes. Does this make sense? I'm using a lot of big words, and so... You know, I want to make sure that we're really getting this, that, the, that we're really grasping onto this and that our eyes aren't just glazing over in this because this is so important. Moses is making really theological, doctrinal statements about God in his worship, okay? Our worship songs, when we sing to God about God, because remember, worship is everything ab- about who God is and what he's done, that needs to be right, what we're singing. If we're going to be worshiping God, and I, I worship God and say something like, your sin, O oh God, is so beautiful. That's wrong. God doesn't sin. That's not theological. That's not doctrinal. That's not right. That's not biblical. That's not true. And so when I worship God and attribute to him an attribute that's not his, I'm worshiping a wrong God. I'm making up a God that I'm worshiping. Do you understand the significance of that? When our worship isn't doctrinal, when it's not biblical, when it's not right, when it's not true, we're basically committing idolatry. We're creating God in our mind and worshiping that God rather than worshiping the God of the Bible. Does this make sense? So in order for us to not get caught up singing attributes to God that aren't his, we need to be, we need to have a good theological foundation. Does that make sense? We need to understand who God is. We need to have a good, solid, theological foundation on who God is. What does this mean? Hey, I encourage you, family, don't don't just leave this to, to some other people. Understand what theology is. If I'm if if you're hearing me say theology and you don't understand what theology is, that's okay. Theology is the study of God. Theology is the study of God. Okay? And there are theologians out there who their profession, their pursuit of study is to study the attributes of God and to explain them, okay? Every single one of us, family, should be a theologian. Every single one of us should be a theologian to some extent. I'm not saying that you need to go to seminary and get multiple, you know, postdoctorate degrees and all of this to, you know, in philosophy and theology and all these things to study God. I'm not saying that each of you need to dedicate your life to that, but understand each of us needs to be a theologian if we're going to worship God. Each of us needs to have a good, solid foundation of theology, a biblical doctrine, so that we can know who God is, so that we can worship him rightly. Okay? This is something, though, that needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Because there are many people that hear this call, this encouragement, this exhortation to be theologians. And they go and they do that. 
They buy every theology book out there by every diverse theologian they can find. They get systematic theology by Wayne Grudem and pick up the, the whole systematic theology set by, by Hodge. And, you know, then they go and they, they, they build up this huge theology library and they become so well read that God becomes little more than a philosophical concept to them rather than a personal God. Okay. Each of us needs to be a theologian. We all need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, we all need to be theologians. And I encourage you to go get theology books. Go read up on these things. Don't be ignorant about these things, okay? Be a theologian, but listen. Don't get caught up in theology and forget to worship God. Don't get so caught up in theology that you forget to worship God. It reminds me of a, uh, a good friend of mine who, you know, I, I'm obviously not going to say his name. And, and I don't mean this to come off that I'm like dogging him because he loves Jesus and he is so solid and, and passionate about his relationship with Jesus. But I want to share this to underscore the dangers of studying theology purely for the pursuit of studying theology, okay? He goes to CBU, Cal Baptist University, and he's in the Bachelor of Applied Theology program. So naturally, what does he study? Theology. In this Bachelor of Applied Theology program, he is crammed with an entire seminary's worth of knowledge in a much shorter amount of time. And uh, I remember one time I, I told him, hey, bud, come on out to, uh, to the well with me. And he said, this is what he said. And again, this is not a dog to him, okay? But this is just the dangers, okay? He looked me in the eyes and he said, I have been studying about Jesus all week. I need a break. And I was so bummed. I walked away so bummed. I understood where he was coming from, but that's such a bummer to get to that place that you feel like you need a break from Jesus. You remember I said earlier that the only thing that you can never have too much of is Jesus, right? But here's the thing. He didn't have too much Jesus. He had too much theoretical knowledge about God that wasn't connected personally. You remember we talked about that Our worship must be personal, right? So there's this balance between our worship being personal and our worship being theological, our worship being doctrinal, okay? Our worship does need to be doctrinal, though. It's so important. It's so important that we become theologians and study who God is so that we can worship him rightly. Philip Graham Riken even said that This is the pursuit. This is the end result. This is the purpose of theology. Philip Graham Riken said that this is the purpose of theology that we would worship God. The purpose of theology is that we would worship God. The purpose of theology is not so that we become intelligent. The purpose of theology is not so that we can just be intellectual giants and and demean other Christians and, oh, well, you don't understand the uh, complexities of the uh, inerrancy of Scripture or the immutability of God's eternality. And That's not the purpose of theology. 
The purpose of theology is that we could worship God. That we could worship God. Because the more you study theology, family, the more you study who God is, the more you understand what God has done for you and who God is, the more you are going to want to worship. So again, our worship must be directed to God. It must be for God's glory. Our worship must be personal. It must be founded in a relationship with him. Our worship has everything to do with who God is and what he has done. And our worship must also be doctrinal. It must be theological. Okay? Lastly, as we're going to see, and this is a little bit tied in with what I said before, but sort of not. Our, our worship must be true. Our worship must be true. Let's pick up reading. In verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. We'll pause right there. I almost kept reading and butchered my breaks. (laughs) Our worship must be true. Understand what just happened is that was prophecy. Okay, that was prophecy. It has not happened. It was not happening at that time. Okay, the, the people of Edom, or rather the, the leaders of Edom weren't trembling. Okay, the, the leaders of Moab weren't frozen still. Okay, this wasn't happening yet. And God was not yet going to establish the people in the land of Canaan. But it was going to happen. It was going to happen. It was a prophecy. And it was a, pro- a prophecy that we're going to read fulfilled in the book of Joshua. Okay? In the book of Joshua, this prophecy will be fulfilled. But our worship has to be true. Our worship has to be true. Not only in a theological sense, but just in a general sense. Okay? When you say things like, I would dance a thousand miles for you, God, that's not true. If you're going to sing that, go dance a thousand miles for Jesus. When you sing things to God, when you worship him in song, the things that you're saying, let them be true or don't sing it. Don't worship him with these eloquent words of, poetic praise if you don't mean it. Our worship to God must be true. Okay? God is spirit. Those who, mo- those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you're going to worship God with something, mean it. 
It has to be true or it's not worth it. It's a lie. It's a lie. And a lie before God isn't worship. It isn't worship. It's sin. It's disgusting. It's offensive to God. Not only should our worship be directed to God for his glory, not only should our worship be personal, not only is our worship everything, having everything to do with who he is and what he's done, not only should our worship be doctrinal, but our worship must be true. And lastly, our worship must be congregational. Our worship must be congregational. Verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, surely, or sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Our worship must be congregational. Our worship must be congregational. This is what I mean. When you go to a worship service, and the only person singing is the worship leader, that's a problem. That's a problem. It's not just Moses who's praising God, but it's, and it's not just the men who are singing and praising God, but it's Moses and Miriam and all the people of Israel, even the children are singing praises to God. They are singing the song of Moses. Yeah, it may be Moses' song, But this is Israel's song. This is worship from the congregation of Israel. Everyone is praising God. Our worship must be congregational. It's not about Moses. It's not about Miriam. It's not about any person. It's not about a guitar solo or a drum solo. It's not about how great someone's voice sounds or how terrible someone else's voices sound. That doesn't matter. That isn't worship. That isn't worship. Now, it is true. I I will say, if you're going to be a worship leader, you need the heart and you need the gift. If you don't have both of them, don't be a worship leader. If you don't have the heart, but you're an amazing musician or vocalist, don't do it, okay? Because that's not real worship. It's not true, right? But if you don't have, this is being a worship leader. If you don't have the gift, okay? If you can't play guitar, you can't sing, don't be a worship leader. That's okay. You know, you need both. You need the heart and the gift to be a worship leader. But to be a worshiper, you don't need to sound great to sing praises to God. Make a joyful noise, right? Even if it's a terrible noise, make a joyful noise nonetheless. Worship isn't about any individual person. Worship is congregational. Okay? So let's go over these. I'm going to do every other one, and I'm going to ask you for every other one to see if you guys have been listening. Firstly, we looked that our worship must be to God. Secondly, we saw that our worship is for God's glory. Thirdly, we looked at the fact that our worship must be everything about who God is and what he's done. Thank you. Left me hanging for a while. We looked at that worship it has everything to do with who God is and what he's done. I miss personal. That's what threw everyone off. I'm sorry. I miss personal. So I'll just say that. Our worship must be personal. It must be everything about who God is and what he's done. Our worship must also be doctrinal. 
It must be doctrinal. It must be rooted in theology. We also serve that our worship must be true. Lastly, we looked at that our worship must be congregational. Our worship must be congregational. Okay? The last thing that we're going to look at, and I'm going to tie this up very quickly because I spent much longer than I intended to on this, because we are going to go back into a time of worship. Because how could I talk about worship and we not worship? (laughs) But the last thing that we need to look at is that our worship is not only in seasons of great triumph, but seasons of great testing as well. Not only is our worship, or should our worship be in seasons of great triumph, but also in seasons of great testing. All of these things so far that we've looked at have all been examples from the Song of Moses. Now we're going to look at an example of Israel's failure to realize this and the lesson they learned. That's going to be where we learn most of our lessons through the rest of the Pentateuch. The rest of the first five books of the Old Testament, we, we looked at Genesis and we're looking at Exodus, but the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were pretty much every lesson that we're going to learn is from Israel's failures. It's just the reality of things, okay? We're going to be looking at Israel's failures and the lessons they learned from them, trying to apply them to our lives. So let's continue reading through the rest of Exodus 15, picking up in verse 22. So they just had this awesome worship service to God. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. We'll pause right there. Hang on, I have to take a drink of tea. My throat is killing me. Israel has just come from this awesome worship service, remembering what God has done, and they go into the wilderness now. They go into the wilderness They've now been saved. It's done. They have been saved from from Egypt, from slavery to Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness. As Christians, what happens after you make this profession to follow Christ and you give your life to him and you praise God for him saving your soul? What happens next? Life. Life. The wilderness. And so Israel makes their way, ready or not, into the wilderness in the desert of Shur, and they're on their way, and they get three days, and they realize they have no water, okay? So what do they do? They complain. They complain. They get bitter, and they complain. Finally, they see this oasis, and they come running up to it, and they dip their hand into the water, and they put it to their lips, and they spit it back out because it's bitter, and they start crying and complaining to Moses. Moses, what are you going to do about this? This whole Exodus thing was your idea, and now we're going to die in the wilderness of thirst. What happened? Israel has gone from remembering what God has done and who he is and praising him to now forgetting, 
being selfish, being ungrateful, and ultimately not trusting in and having faith in God. They don't believe that God's going to pull through. They don't believe that he's going to save. And so what do they do? Do they cry out to God? Do they trust in him patiently? No, they complain. What ends up happening is Moses takes a, a tree and throws it into the water and it becomes sweet and they drink. There's a lot more that I'd love to go into about that, about the symbolism, but I don't have time. You can listen to John Corson's message at harvest.org, church.harvest.org. Go to the archive. John Corson taught Harvest a little while ago about this passage. It's really awesome during fourth service. But God provides for the children of Israel. But understand, it wasn't the water that was bitter, but it was their hearts that were bitter. God used the bitterness of the water to expose to them the bitterness of their hearts. They, here they were in a trial. They were definitely in a, in a problematic situation. They've just been through quite a few problematic situations like being in slavery, being run down by the Egyptians. God parts the Red Sea. They cross through. They're still being chased by the Egyptians. The water closes over them. God continues to provide over and over and over again. And here they are now without water. And what do they do? Do they say, well, God's provided for us so far. He's going to provide now. No. Do they say everything that happens, I trust in God. God, you're so great. Your provision is awesome. And your timing is excellent. Do they praise him now? No. They complain. They're bitter. And they complain. Understand, family, no matter what is happening in your life, whether you're in a time of great triumph or a time of great trial, you can and should praise God. Why? He's God. He's God. Remember, worship has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. Worship has nothing to do with what you've done or are doing and everything to do with what he's done and is doing. Okay, God is faithful. It's a promise. God will provide for you. It's a promise. Okay, it is a promise in the Bible. God can't welch on a promise. He can't do it because then he wouldn't be glorious. Right? Praise God. Whether you're in times of great triumph or times of great trial, you can worship God because he's good. All the time. Even when you don't understand it, God is still good. God is good. We'll finish this up. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. We'll just finish it up, and then I'll explain. Then they came to Eliam, where, they were, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there, by the water. This is the first time God makes a command to the people of Israel here. As this people, they've come out of Egypt, God makes their first command to them, the first law in a sense. When we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, but even before the Ten Commandments, we have this. 
God says, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. And I'm not going to put on you all the diseases of Egypt and I will be your healer. I want to point out something extremely crucial about this. Speaking of doctrine, and then we're going to go into a time of worship. Israel's obedience had nothing to do with their salvation. They've already been saved, okay? This command has nothing to do with their salvation. It's not, if you do this, I will save you. They've already been saved, okay? This process of them being in the wilderness, again, is about sanctification. It's about being separated from the world, okay? It's about sanctification. This command and all of the commands of God in our lives don't have any weight on our salvation. Otherwise, your salvation would be by works, not by grace through faith alone, okay? So everything that you do is an outpouring of love for God in response to his love for you. God, I would love to not be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Why? Not because you've commanded it, like you demanded of me, like it's some law, but because you loved me so much to save me that I love you and I want to obey you. Okay? Do we understand the difference? God's commands in Scripture to us as Christians don't have anything to do with our salvation. Our salvation was purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's by grace through faith alone in Jesus, okay? has nothing to do with our works. Our salvation has nothing to do with what we do, but what we do should have everything to do with our salvation. Our salvation has nothing to do with what we've done, but what we do should have everything to do with our salvation. Because God has saved me, I'm not going to sin. Because God has saved me, I'm not going to spit in his face. Because God has saved me, I'm not going to go run around and just party and get drunk and do drugs and just sleep with a bunch of people. I'm not going to do that because God has saved me. Family, it's important for us to take our minds off this mentality that we need to earn God's love and favor and salvation by doing good works. And we need to realize, we need to realize that God has saved us and worship him by obeying him. And that's our last point, is that worship is obedience. Worship is obedience. So now, we're going to go into a time where I'm going to have Brian and April come back up and we're going to do three or four more worship songs and I just encourage you to remember these things and let God's word mull over in your mind as you think about all these things. Let your worship family be directed to God for his glory. Let it be personal and having everything to do with who he is and what he's done. Let your worship be personal and having everything to do with your relationship with him. Let your worship be doctrinal. Let it be true. Let it be congregational. Family, let's rock this place, okay? Every, every week almost, we hear the birthday crazy techno music from the, the place next door. Let's let them hear our worship. 
let, let's let our worship be congregational. Whether you're in a time of great triumph or tribulation, let's worship God now. Let's worship God in obedience. Father, I pray that as we go into this time of worship, that you'd prepare our hearts to really praise your name for your good. And you do deserve all honor and glory and power and praise forever and ever. Amen.